Good. Are we okay? Wonderful. So just while they're sorting the, the kids out, I know they're going upstairs. Some of them screaming. It seems. We uh, just want to remind you guys about a couple of things. We'll tell you guys about a couple of things. One is we're starting a new series in um, January after Mike Pelavachi's visit called Holy Cows. And so we're going to be looking for two months at some of the things that are holy cows in our society and the culture around us, things that actually we, we dare not touch because of the, the pushback that we'll receive. And so uh, we're going to be getting to some of those. Some of the topics I think will be really interesting, but more than interesting and hopefully provocative, we want them to be um, teachings that will really help you engage in the world around us. So that's going to be happening um, in the new year, Holy Cow, so look out for that around us. And then also just to remind you guys that we've got the equipping semester, which we're going to tell you a bit about more, but it happens in February every year, and it's a, it's a time of the year where we just shut things down, life groups and prayer meetings for one month, so that we can focus on some specific equipping um, courses that, that, we, that we'll run to build you up and strengthen you as believers, okay? And so we want you to be thinking ahead and saying, okay, I'm going to be a part of at least one course in February. We do encourage you not to join too many because we don't want you to finish February exhausted. I'm going to be a part of at least one of these courses and choose one. And there's, there's a whole lot running, but I want to highlight one this morning. One is going to be um, a course on biblical counseling. And I want to encourage you guys to, uh, to be thinking about whether God is wanting to use you to counsel other people. And if you felt a stirring in that area before, begin to pray even now, before the flyers and things come out. And uh, don't think of this, this is a month off. Think of this, actually, this is that time in the year, in the next 12 months of 2017, where I'm really going to sharpen up in an area in my life. And uh, we'll give you more details on that. I just wanted to give you that um, precursor into it. Okay, sound good? Um, obviously, there's a few empty chairs. Some people are away. Um, it is uh, New Year's around the corner. Can you believe it? 2017 is coming up, and it's kind of the, the idea in my mind of what I want to preach around today. And so if you've got your Bibles, you guys can put the slides up. Thanks. You can, there we go. Don't you love mountains? I love mountains. Eh? One of my favorite things is going to India and seeing the Himalaya mountains, just these, these immovable objects, so grand and majestic and they look kind of like that, except I'm not that close. But um, we're going to read from Hebrews 12, verse 22 to 29. So if you've got your Bibles, why don't you, uh, why don't you open them? And just for those that are, um, say, why are we doing it this way around? I want to say two reasons. One is, I feel like this preacher lead us to a place of worship. So as I share today, I hope you get stirred up and you, you want to worship God more. So by the, by the time we land this preacher, we're going to get into worship. The other reason is because um, some people are still going to be arriving in the next 10 minutes. And uh, I don't do this to catch people out, but I do wonder sometimes why we feel it's okay to arrive late in worship when it's not okay to arrive late in someone's preaching. And I, I almost think to myself, I'd actually rather do it the other way around. If worship is us engaging with God, that's not the thing that I want to arrive late for. Worship is not um, a warm-up game for the real thing, which is the preaching of the Word um, you know, sometimes when we go watch rugby in South Africa, they have a, a warm-up game, which just means that people go to the rugby stadium and go drink their beers while that game's on, and then they warm themselves up for the real game. They come out and watch the real game. Worship is not that. Worship is the event. It's what we come together for. We are a, a corporate community, and there's something powerful about standing together with somebody else next to you and worshiping with them. So 
Brigitte here is here this morning, and I worship with my brother here. There's something in, in that of us being together, worshiping God. And so I want to encourage you, if you are prone to arriving late, I want to invite you to arrive early in time for the, for, um, for the worship at least. We, we actually pray most Friday mornings, all except the first of the month at nine o'clock. So you can be a part of that time as well. So Rob, gee, kind of putting a bit of pressure on us, on us I, um, I want to say good. Good, because although the kingdom of God, we, we receive our salvation free, it's, it's a free work of God, there is something that God wants from us as we receive our life, as He wants our, actually, our life back from us. Anyway, that's not me preaching, let me get on with this now. Hebrews 12, verse 22 to 29, I'm excited about this word, let's dive in and I'm going to slow down. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God. I feel like we should have a keyboard playing while I read this passage of scripture, it's so beautiful. But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, and to innumerable angels and festal gathering, and to assembly of the firstborn who are enrolled in heaven, and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking, for if they did not escape when they refused him who warned them on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth, but now he has promised, and listen to this, friends, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of things that are shaken, that is, things that have been made, in order that the things that cannot be shaken may rem- remain. Therefore, Let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. And thus, let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe, for our God is a consuming fire. Lord, I pray for us who are gathered here today in your name, that that as your word is proclaimed, that Father, our hearts will be open to receive, not just to hear it, Lord God, but to allow it to be planted as a seed in our life that can produce life in us and through us into the lives of others, Lord God. We thank you for this beautiful picture that your word paints, and I pray for the wisdom as I preach from it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. There's a newspaper in America called the Chicago Tribune that says that 2016 was a year unlike any other. And I think many of us can look back on this year and say it has been an extraordinary year in the world. One of the the dictionaries, the Merriam-Webster, picked the word of the year as surreal, and uh, it was... Some call it the year of the people. It was a, it's, it's been an, an amazing year with what's gone on around us. In many ways, there's been the shaking that's kind of going on. And I don't know whether, um, I mean, to, to what extent we can say it's a divine shaking, but I know God is in control. And so whenever we see a shaking around us, we believe that the, the God of heaven and earth is behind us. There's something going on in what he's doing. And I can give you two guarantees for 2017. It'll continue to be a year of change, and it'll continue to be a year of challenges as well. Many good things as well, but there will be change and there'll be challenges. And the reason why I know this is because the only consistent thing in our lives is change. There's something changing all the time. I was chatting to um, Gerald and Michelle. Some of you might know, but they're, uh, they've, they've got a baby on the way. If you don't know that when you look at Michelle, then, then obviously you're a bit embarrassed for her. But see, that little bump there is actually a baby on the way. Their lives are about to change dramatically. We know that because we've been through that change. That is a constant um, reality of our lives. 
And the other reason that we know that there's going to be a challenge is because Jesus told us. He said to us that, don't worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow has enough troubles of its own. There are always challenges before us, whatever, whatever decision we make, however we live our lives. And in this text, we read about a shaking. And the writer of Hebrews says that everything that can be shaken will be shaken. And uh, sometimes we, we look at things and we think, well, this is unshakable, only to find that it does shake. You know, this, is, this thing will never change, only to find that it does change. It's things that we, we, um, we, in a way, depend upon. They become the rocks upon which we stand. Suddenly are shaking. We go, well, now what is left for me to stand upon? And uh, it's kind of a shifting or a sifting, rather, that takes place in these times of shaking. You know, when they would um, pan for gold and they would take that, um, that like mesh thing and they would shake it like this, and what would happen is all the, the junk would be washed off and what would be left behind they, would be the heavy gold. And it's kind of like God is sifting us in our lives like this. He's, he's panning for gold in our lives. And what's left behind through all the testing and the sifting is actually this faith, which the Bible says will be proved of greater value than gold. Well, maybe it's what will be left behind. Sometimes when the sifting takes place, there's, there's no, there is no faith and there's no gold there. And that's exactly why it's there, to reveal to us whether we actually have faith or don't have faith. And so our perspective of challenges needs to change, not as something bad, or even the trials we go through, not as something bad, but as something that God gives us to reveal our faith to us. But with the shaking and the sifting that we have promised, how come Jesus can say to us in Matthew 6, 34, do not worry? Do not worry about tomorrow. And the reason is because the kingdom we're receiving is, as the writer in Hebrew says, an unshakable kingdom. So our feet are not planted upon something that shakes. Well, they ought not to be. They ought to be planted upon the rock that is Jesus Christ that will never be shaken. And so while everything else shakes around us and we might even lose things that are precious to us or see things that are, that are, that we've, that we've, um, that are valuable to us, um, shaken and even taken away. The thing that's most important, most precious, this kingdom is unshakable. And that's what we are. The Bible says we are receiving it. It's not all ours now. We are in the process of receiving it. And what it means is that while economies or political systems, philosophies or even relationships and even our own health might shake, the kingdom that we stand upon will not be shaken. God's purposes and His will will be done on this earth, and if we will we'll allow him through our lives as well. The kingdom of God, I think you guys know this, has come, is coming, and will come. You guys understand that, hey? So Jesus said the kingdom of God has come. He, he um, casts out a demon. He says, if this is done by the power of the Holy Spirit, he says, the kingdom of God has come right now. But then he also says the kingdom of God is near, and elsewhere he says the kingdom of God is still coming. And so we, we live with this tension of the kingdom that has come, is coming, and will come. And for us, the part of the kingdom that has come, for those of us that are followers of Jesus Christ, is our salvation. If we've come to that place where we've put our trust in Jesus Christ and His finished work upon the cross, then that is established and done. You are saved. I, friends, I, I never want anything I say up front to ever lead you to doubt if you are a believer that you are a believer. If, if you have trusted in Jesus Christ as your Savior, then we are saved once and for all. Our names are written in the Lamb's book of life. I don't believe that there's a tippix for that blood. 
I believe once they're written, they are written, and he who has saved you will keep you till the end. And so there's an assurance that we need to have, having come to Christ, that I am his. And there may be seasons of your life where you even live like an unbeliever, but I believe if you are a believer, you will never be able to stay there. You have to come back to God again every time. And so we should have this, like this bursting assurance in our hearts. I'm his. Nothing can ever separate me from him. I live with that absolute expectation, even at my my weakest moment, I can never be separated from the love of God. I'm convinced of that truth. But, the, but living out the fullness of my salvation, now that's another thing entirely. Living above the line, living, living in the, the, the reality of what Christ has won for me, well, that in, it depends a lot on me. Christ said it's for freedom that I've set you free. And yet we can still live like slaves. Am I right? Anybody agree with me? Am I right? <laughs> I'm always right. No, I'm joking. So <laughs> you can just automatically nod at that point. But we can live like slaves. We can live below the line. Instead of living like, like the, the free men that we are, we can live like slaves. Instead of living full of faith, we can live without faith. There are, there are those realities. And so this morning, I want to talk about how we receive this, um, this unshakable kingdom. And we've gone to this passage in Hebrews, and it speaks about coming to a mountain, Mount Zion. I love the imagery that goes on there. Anyway, I don't want to get into that. But, um, but this week, as I've been preparing, well, even before I started preparing, God was speaking to me about what I wanted, He wanted me to speak about today. And we stand, whenever I come to the end of the year, I have a sense to which I stand looking out over the year ahead. So that's 2016, and this is 2017. And I, and I get to kind of stand on the 31st of December, and look and go, wow, wow, Lord, this is what you've got. Gee, look what's happening. That's gonna, there's a sense of looking out. And one of my favorite movies is um, The Lion King. Do you know The Lion King? You've seen it. So there's a, the central character is a young man by the name of Simba, who's actually a little lion cub, and he has a father whose name is Mufasa. That's right. I was checking this with Ethan the other day. And... Um, and uh, Mufasa takes, in this one scene in the movie, which I remember clearly, he takes um, Simba to this ridge like this, which overlooks all the land. And he says to Simba, he says, my boy, he's a deep gruff voice because he's a big lion. He says, my boy, one day, all of this that you see will be yours. And there's that sense to which God takes us to a high point as we look into our future and says, says, this is what I have for you. These are the promises. This is the promised land of your life. And in many ways, it's different. We, we, we don't all share the same promises, though many of them are the same. But there's a promised land of your life. This is what I have for you. This is what I'm giving to you. And yet, if you know the story of the Lion King, and this is a spoiler alert, what happens is his father dies, killed by his evil uncle. Go see the movie. It's unbelievable. And, um, and Simba kind of gives up on his whole inheritance. It's like he's got, he meets these... Um, little um, ragamuffins who tell him it's, life's not about fighting for it. You must just give up and just go the easy way. And Akuna Matata, life's trouble-free philosophy. I feel like a song coming on here. And, um, and there's, there's a sense to which God gives us, He says to us, He takes us to the high place. He says, all of this is yours, but the choices we make and the decisions we make will determine whether we walk out the fullness of the promised land. And just because I know some of you are anxious to know, Simba did come back. And take his promises and walk out that land. So this morning we're going to look at three giants in Scripture. And uh, we're going to look at their moments upon the mountain. And where God showed them the promised land and how they responded to the tests or to what brought them to that point. 
and then to the tests after that point as well. And we're going to start off, and, and this, my sense is that we receive this unshakable kingdom through three things. And the first is we receive it by faith, the second by obedience, and the third by worship. And you'll see now why I want to end this morning by bringing the worship team back up again and for us to worship this incredible God that we serve. So number one, we receive it by faith. In Genesis 13, 14 to 17, it says this, The Lord said to Abram, his name hadn't yet changed to Abraham, although I'm going to refer to him as Abraham continually. The Lord said to Abram, after Lot had separated from him, Lift your eyes and look from the place where you are, northward, southward, eastward, and westward. So it's kind of that, you see the Mephasa Simba moment here. Hey, he's, he takes Abram and he says, Look, as far as you can see that way, as far as you can see that way, and that way, and that way, it's yours. I've given this to you. For all the land that you see, I will give to you and to your offspring forever. I will make your offspring as the dust of the earth, so that if one can count um, the dust of the earth, your offspring also can be counted. Arise, walk through the length and the breadth of the land, for I will give it to you. And uh, it was his, but it's not that simple. See, there is, there is a, a faith that is required for Abraham to receive that inheritance that is his. This isn't a, a, a kind of blind, I think one of the accusations that Christians maybe sometimes justifiably um, face is that we hear this accusation that we just operate by blind faith, that we set reason aside and, um, and we, just, we, we just kind of obey. But actually that's not what God has in place here. Faith doesn't deny the facts. Abraham, he's, he's got this promise that your offspring will be more than the sand on the seashore. Do you know how many children he had at this point? Exactly zero. And he was old. Um, by the time Abraham finally has, well, he doesn't have, Sarah has Isaac. By the time Isaac is born to Sarah, Abraham is a whopping 100 years old. And so he, he was really getting on. It says that he was old. It says Bar uh, Sarah was old. It says all the necessary bits were no longer working. Sarah was completely barren. Well, some of them were working, but they weren't working the way they needed to be working. You know what I mean? And so Abraham is not denying the facts. He faces the facts, but his faith is in a higher reality. I don't just believe what I see. I believe what is unseen as well. And I believe that the unseen realm is a higher reality than the seen realm. That's what faith is. And it's hard for us because when you are, when you are brought up in a way that this is real because you can touch it, you can see it, you can hear it, you can taste it. It's, it's, I didn't really lick it. I was just sound effects. You see, we, 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 come, we come with this idea that that's real because I can empirically test it, but the unseen is not real. In fact, we, our children are taught this explicitly at, at school. What you cannot see is not real. It doesn't affect us. But actually, faith says that the unseen realm, the, the realm of God and His promises and His plans is a higher reality than the realm of what we see around us. And so Abraham believes that God's promises are truer reality than his own barrenness. And those promises are going to begin to change the facts. And that's exactly what does happen. And he has a child at 100 years old. But that wasn't even the real test. God would take Abraham and test him and test his faith. And sometimes we, we ask, well, why are you testing our faith? Why, why test us? Why not just make it completely easy? Friends, because sometimes we don't have faith. 
And we need to be, sh- be shown that we don't have, so we can come to that place again and say, Lord, I actually never trusted you, but now that I've been tested and it's been revealed, I am going to put my trust in you. And sometimes God does it because He wants to reveal to us, even if it's something small, there's a success here. Okay, then I, Lord, then I can trust you with a bigger faith step, and then I can trust you with a bigger faith step, and with a bigger faith step. And Abraham had to trust God that he was going to get this child, which he did at 100 years old, and he loved his boy. It's one of the most beautiful pictures of a father and son relationship is this between Abraham and Isaac. It's just he, I can just imagine him taking his Isaac and kissing his face like, oh, my promise, my promise. And his name actually means laughter because God filled their mouths with laughter because of what happened. And then God comes to him and he says to him, Genesis 22 verse 1 and 2, after these things, God tested Abraham and said to him, Abraham. And he said, here I am. He said, take your son, your only son Isaac, whom you love, and go to the land of Moriah and offer him there as a burnt offering on one of the mountains of which I shall tell you. What a thing to ask of somebody. (laughs) To take the thing that was most precious to Abraham in all the world, that that not only was most precious to him in the now, but was most precious to him in terms of his legacy of of the promise of God, because it's through Isaac that the promise is going to come to pass. And I want you to offer him on a mountain. And and I know that's hard for us to even comprehend that God would ask that, but he does because it's here in Scripture. And Abraham obeys. You know what I love about this is it's not like a robot, like, okay, I will obey, kind of take your son, kind of bring him to the altar, Ah, like this. It's It's not, it's a father full of like the emotions and the turmoil and, and all the, 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 the reality of that decision, bringing his son to the mountain. And when his son says to him, but, but father, we've got the wood and we've got the, you know, the fire making, we've got everything else for the sacrifice, we don't have the, the, the sacrificial offering. Isaac, he is the sacrificial offering. And somehow Abraham convinces him, because I don't think he could have fought him because he's probably 120 at this point, and he puts his son upon the altar and he has the knife raised ready to plunge it into him. Not a robotic obedience, but a faith step. He is absolutely convinced that the promises of God will come to pass no matter what takes place. And if you read in Hebrews, it actually gives us some insight into Abraham's thinking. It says this, Hebrews eleven seventeen to 19. By faith Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac. And he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, of whom it was said, through Isaac shall your offspring be named. He considered, listen to this, he considered that God was able even to raise him from the dead, from which figuratively speaking, he did receive him back. Abraham acted in faith. No, God had made a promise, and no matter what he called me to do, he would never destroy the promise. And God has made promises over your lives. As you stand and you look over 2,000 and 17, and, and frankly, way beyond that as well. There are promises of this unshakable kingdom in your life as well. And sometimes God calls you to act in a, with a faith that transcends our understanding. To, to be willing to lay down things that you think, well, I thought this was the promise. I thought this was it, Lord. Now I want you to lay it down. It might be the call of God upon your life. It might be, it might be that promotion. It might be the move to that country. It might be... Uh, um, it might be so many things. I don't want to presume. I can think of a few right now. Abraham, we know, takes his son. God stops him at the point that the knife is about to go in and uh, holds his hand there. And uh, as he takes his son off, there's a ram caught in a thicket and the ram becomes the sacrifice upon the altar. 
this unshakable kingdom is received by faith. Secondly, the unshakable kingdom is received by obedience. And now we're going to look at the life of Moses. Isn't the Bible ruthless in his betrayal of human failure? I mean, I'm so glad I'm not a Bible character, that they're not writing a story about me, because I cannot, I mean, I love this book, and I think Moses comes out pretty well in the end, but we, we see all of his weaknesses. We, they don't hide David's weaknesses. There they are. Peter, this great apostle of the faith, at times he acted like a moron, and it gets recorded in Scripture for all eternity. It's like, holy moly, the Bible doesn't mind. And it does the same thing with Moses. Here's this guy who's, um, who's an incredible leader. Um, one part of Scripture says that God spoke to Moses face to face as a man does with his friend. That's, that's the relationship that God had with Moses. And yet, when uh, he has his mountain moment, it's actually quite a tragic moment. Listen to this. In Numbers 27, 27, God tells Moses to go up the mountain. He says this, and see the land that I've given to the people of Israel. Um, and then in, in Deuteronomy 3, verse 27, he says this, um, lift up your eyes westward, northward, southward, eastward. Look at it with your eyes. And if it wasn't so tragic, it would be funny because it's kind of like God says to Moses, oh, you, you can see the land with your eyes. You don't have to use your hands to touch. You know, like kids want to, let me see that. And they want to touch that thing. And we go like, hey, look with your eyes, not with your fingers, like this. And it's kind of like God saying that to Moses. Look with your eyes, but you don't get to walk in it. And um, Moses, this amazing leader, this father of these millions of Israelites that he led for 40 years around the desert to, to the verge of the promised land. He's about to go in. And, and it's like he's he can, so close, he can taste it. In fact, I've stood on that exact spot. Well, I don't know if the exact spot, but I stood on, on that same mountain where Moses stood, Mount Nebo, and looked out over the promised land. I think God must have given him a supernatural ability to see all of it, kind of like this sweeping panoramic view of everything that was, was Israel's promise. And he, says, and he says this, listen to this tragic account. Moses now recounting this to Israel about his time on the mountain. He says, And I pleaded with the Lord at that time, saying, O Lord God, you've only begun to show your servant your greatness and your mighty hand. For what God is there in heaven or on earth who can do such works and mighty acts as yours? Please let me go over and see the good land beyond the Jordan, that good hill country and Lebanon. And uh, you kind of, I mean, I want to say, yes, go Moses, go into the promised land like this. But, but listen to the Lord's reply. But the Lord was angry with me because of you and would not listen to me. And the Lord said to me, enough from you. Do not speak to me of this matter again. Go up to the top of Pisgah. And lift your eyes westward and northward and southward and eastward. And look at it with your eyes, for you shall not go over the Jordan. Our God is a God of second chances. I'm absolutely convinced of that. But he will not be trifled with. And there's this, this um, somebody put on Twitter a while ago that Jesus has a love language also. And it's called obedience. So you guys know about love languages, eh? If you don't know about them, then um, how are you even married? No, I'm only joking. But, but Jesus has a love language as well. It's called obedience. He says, if you, in John, he says, if you love me, you will obey me. And, and just a bit later, he says, if anyone loves me, he will obey my teachings. John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey what I command. And is Jesus making his love conditional? Like, I'll love you if you obey me. That's not what that scripture says. It says, if you love me. In other words, if we love God, we will obey him. He's not making his, he loves us. He died for us while we were still his enemies. It says, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son. His love for us is unconditional. 
It's been expressed in the highest possible way that God would offer his own son. But our love, the proof of our love is in our obedience to God. You see, you can say you love God, but if you're not obedient to his commands, you don't truly love him. You don't. If, and you must say, well, Rob, Rob, Rob. I say, well, don't argue with me. Argue with Jesus. It's his book. He wrote it, and so you can, have, you can have words with him. But the truth is that God is looking at our love and testing our love to see if we're walking with obedience. That's why God can say of Moses that, um, that he broke faith. Remember a while ago I preached on uh, the taking of Jericho as Joshua led Israel into the promised land. And one of the guys, instead of, um, he took some of the consecrated goods. So they were supposed to destroy everything. And the gold and silver was supposed to go to the temple. And this man called Achan couldn't resist it. And he had to stick his his dirty hands on those consecrated goods and, and keep them for himself. And when God rebuked Israel, he said, Israel has broken faith with me. Because faith and obedience are the, are the opposite sides of the same coin. You see, we, we walk in obedience because we have faith in him. Because we trust him to always be there for us. And so sometimes we, 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 we disobey because we think, I'll be happier if I disobey than if I obey. It's, I'll be happier if, I've, if I have... Um, sex before marriage than if I obey God and I wait until marriage. I'll be happier if, if, I, um, if I steal this money from my work bank account than I will be if I trust God with, it, with, with less. I'll be happier if, um, it's because we just don't trust that God's going to lead us in that way. And so God calls us to this life of radical obedience. So what happened to Moses? Why did he come to this point? And we can read about it in uh, Numbers 20. Maybe you can go read it later. But I'll read some scriptures from it, but the point is this, is that Moses is leading, at one point, there were three million people and it grew after that. Now, I find it hard sometimes leading a church of a few hundred people as well of lifers, and you, you think, what must it have been like to lead three million people like Moses led? Not just governmentally, but spiritually as well. And um, these people had a slave mentality, and what happened was, they were set free from Egypt, but they because of their disobedience, they wandered around the desert again and again like this. And then what happens is um, they come to this point where they, they, they're desperate for water. They're in the desert. I mean, we can understand that. It's a real need. And they come to Moses and why did you bring us here? Why did you rather not leave us in Egypt? We were better off as slaves in Egypt than as free men in the desert. What do they not have there? They've got no faith. And Moses is, uh, is instructed by God to actually take his staff and go strike a rock. And as he hits the rock, what happens? The water gushes out. And the people are, praise God, hallelujah. We knew God would care for us. You know, all their moaning suddenly behind them and they have the water. And then it happens again. Numbers 20 verse 3 to 5, it says, They quarreled with Moses and said, If only we had died when our brothers fell dead before the Lord. How's that? And if only we'd be better off dead. Why did you bring the Lord's community into this desert that we and our livestock should die here? Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? It's got no grain and no figs or grapevines or pomegranates and there's no water to drink. So Moses is like, oh, jeez, will these people stop moaning? He's like, he's desperately trying to lead them. So he goes to the Lord. He says, Lord, these people are moaning again. What must I do? And he gets such a clear instruction. In Numbers 20 verse 8, the Lord says, take your staff. And you and your brother, Aaron, gather the assembly together, speak to that rock before their eyes, and it will pour out its water. By this time, Moses is up to here with the Israelites. And so he walks out, and he just hits them. In verse 10 and 11, it says, He and 
Aaron gathered the assembly together in front of the rock and Moses said to them, listen, you rebels, must we bring water out of the rock? And then Moses raised his arm and he struck the rock twice with a staff and the water gushed out and the community and their livestock drank. And you say, well, it worked. Well, it worked. And I want to say, friends, pragmatism is not the, the basis of us knowing whether we walk in obedience to God. Sometimes, sometimes somebody will get, they'll marry, they'll start dating an unbeliever and, the, and, the mar- and they get married and it seems to be working fine. They'll go, look, look, we told you, see, it worked. Even if it does work, it's not obedience to God. Even if the person comes to salvation, it's not obedience to God. At some point, you've got to come to the place of repentance and say, Lord, I disobeyed you. Just because something works is not the measure of our obedience to God. The other thing that strikes me here is that Moses only did what he was told to do the last time. The last time he was to hit the rock. And this time God gives him the same outcome, but a different way of getting there. And sometimes we think obedience is just doing what we did the last time and did the last time and did the last time. But obedience is listening every time when the Father speaks. So if it was okay this time to do that, and God told you, you've still got to listen to him afresh. Okay, Lord, my ears are open. I'm listening. I want to walk in radical obedience. In the season ahead, if we to take this unshakable kingdom, if we to receive it, we have to walk in a radical obedience that sets aside pragmatism in favor of obedience. We're not going to base our decision on whether something is good or not on the basis of whether it works. We base it on, Lord, have I been obedient to you? Am I listening to you? We're not even going to base it on what he told us in the past. We're going to base it upon what he's saying in this day and this hour. This time you speak to the rock. It actually says in Corinthians that the rock is somebody. The rock is Christ. It's such an amazing picture. The rod is the authority. The rock is Christ. Moses is to speak to the rock, and the rock releases water. It's a different situation, not strike the rock. And when Moses, when Moses strikes, he takes his authority, and he strikes at the rock that is Christ, or the body of Christ, and water comes. But it's, so it's, it's, there's this, this lesson for us that we can, there is a way for us to make it work, but is it God's way? And friends, I want to tell you we need to walk in obedience. I wanna, I'm over time, but I, let me carry on. I think you gave me less time than I should have had. We had a a lady come to us the one time and uh, she had married um, an unbelieving man. And uh, you must have, gee, Rob, you're getting, I don't know why, these weren't in my notes. So maybe this is for you. Maybe you're dating somebody or contemplating this. Maybe you've done this. And um, she came and sat with us with with a, a leader and spoke to us about the fact that she had married this unbelieving man. And I said to her, you've walked in rebellion. And she said, no, no. In fact, she got all red and she got like, really quite angry with us. Like, how dare you? How dare you tell me I've walked in rebellion? So I said, well, should we just go to the scriptures? And we opened up the scriptures and I said, can you see here? God clearly says that um, if we are to marry, we need to marry somebody who's in the Lord. And, um, and I said to her, I'm not telling you this because I want you to divorce this man. I said, you've made a vow and a commitment to, marry this, to be married to this person for the rest of your life. But... You will never allow God's redemptive work into your marriage until you repent of your rebellion. And so she, honestly, she was spitting mad. Sometimes I feel like I should wear goggles when we do counseling in case I'm just take the eyes out or whatever, you know. Then I said to her, I said, what did your father say to you when, um, when you asked him whether you could marry this man? Because her father was supposed to be a believer. And said, my father said it was fine. So I said to her, on behalf of your father, 
And everybody else that should have spoken in your life at the time, I want to apologize and repent. They should have counseled you properly. And then she broke down, she softened, she repented before the Lord of her rebellion in not obeying him at that time. And as she repented, she opened the door for God's redemptive work to begin to happen in your marriage. I don't know if he will ever be saved, this man. I trust in God he will be. He's a man of another faith. But, um, but I do believe that she walked in the protection and the covering of God, even though she's in this marriage, that God had not ordained. She now brings him into this marriage because of her repentance. We need to walk in radical obedience to God. Amen? Amen. Lastly, it's received by worship. There's a, the last mountain we're going to go to in Scripture is not named. It just says it's a very high mountain. And it must be very high because it says that from that vantage point, Jesus could see all the kingdoms of the world. This time it wasn't Mufasa that was with him on the top of the mountain. It was the uncle whose name is Scarface. What's his name? Scar. Scar. It's the devil that takes Jesus to the high mountain and he says to him this. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. All this I will give you, he said, if you will bow down and worship me. Again, Jesus is being shown the promised land. Everything. Every kingdom that's, that's a part of this earth. Every people that's a part of this thing. I will give you if you will just bow down and worship me. It was a shortcut that he was offering. If he was willing to take that shortcut and, not, and worship the devil, then he would give him all of this. Abraham was told to look north, south, east, and west. Moses was to look north, south, east, and west. This was God's promised land. Jesus is lifted upon this mountain. Look all the way north and south and east and west. All of this I'll give to you. And uh, all you have to do is exchange your, the love of the Father to worship me. Uh, now, it's interesting, two things here, was that Jesus knew, Jesus, sorry, the devil knew that Jesus didn't come just for the Jews. He knew he came for everything. He came for the Greeks and the Brazilians and he came for the Indians and he came for the South Africans and he came for the Ghanans and he came for, he came for every people group. And the devil knew this from the very beginning. That it was, it was never going to stop with just the Jews. The second thing is the devil's a liar. And we think sometimes we get offered the shortcut in our life. I can skip over faith. I can skip over obedience and I'll get to my promised land. He's a liar. You will not get there. You will not get there. We have to walk the road that God gives us to get into the promised land, which is a life of devotion and of worship to Him. Sometimes I sit with people in counseling. I think, why, why do they have this difficult road to walk? Genuinely, it's like, I, I don't understand it. I, it's harder than the road I've had to walk, I think. I, 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 I wish I could just make it different. But it is the journey that you've got to walk. Maybe your marriage is harder than my marriage. Maybe your children are more difficult than my children. Maybe your job is tougher than my job. Maybe your finances or your health or your relationships or something is so much more difficult than mine. And I wish I, I'll be careful that I say this. I wish I could just exchange it with you. I wish I could just give you the, the, the easy road. But actually, our call is to walk the path that God has set us upon with a life of devotion and thanksgiving to God. And that's what Jesus was being offered. If you will just exchange your love for the Father, for worshiping me, then you can have all of this. And it reminds me of that time when Abraham, um, when his nephew Lot is captured. Not, Lot's living in Sodom. He set himself up in the new um, compound of Sodom, this um, lush neighborhood called Sodom. 
And uh, suddenly there's some other kings come in and they invade and they carry away all the people of Sodom and Gomorrah and Lot and his family as well. So Abraham has his own private army, the private security company that he's got. And so he heads out and goes after him and he has a favor of God so that he's like, they're like, sort them out and battle like this. And they, they go running off and they leave behind not only um, the people, but all the plunder and everything as well. And so, so Abraham brings them brings it all back, and they're met by the king of Sodom, who managed to escape. Isn't that the case? Hey? Evil kings always manage to hide away when their people are in trouble. So he suddenly comes out again. Woo-hoo! I'm back in the picture of the king of Sodom. And he says to Abraham, you read exactly what he says. He says in Genesis 14, 21, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. See, there's this demonic strategy that God wants us to give up the relationships for things. He wants us to give up the divine for the, for the natural. He wants us to give up that which is ours by inheritance through Christ for what is, what is, what is common good, what is, what is not sacred. And uh, the devil says you can keep the goodies as long as we're willing to exchange our relationship with God. We will worship created things instead of worshiping God. And I want to say to you that in, in no uncertain terms that worship is relationship with God. Ralph Mahoney says this, Whenever his people gather and worship him, God promises he will make his presence known in their midst. On the other hand, where God's people consistently neglect true spiritual worship, his manifest presence is really experienced. So he is our father and Jesus is our friend and all of those relationships are true. But there is literally only one posture for the creator to have in relationship with the creator And that's a posture of worship. So even as father, we worship him as father. As friend, we worship him as friend. As deliverer, we worship him as our deliverer. As redeemer, we worship him as such. As as brother, we worship him as our brother. That's the posture we have to take. And Jesus understood this. That worship is not a means to an end. Worship is the end. Worship is the promised land. It was never about the land. That's why when... um, uh, the king of Sodom said, give me the people and you can keep the goods. The, the, the cry of heaven is, no, I want the people. It was about relationship. It's, it was never about, um, even with all that's going on with Israel today, and, and I have a, a real heart for Israel. But I want to say it's not about those squeak miles in the desert there. It's not what it's about. The kingdom of God is not about restoring that little bit of geography. The kingdom of God is about God coming into our lives. It's about the, this geography belonging to God, about this becoming into relationship with God. A.W. Tozer says that no man gives anything acceptable to God until he has first given himself in love and sacrifice. There's a sense to which as we stand upon this precipice, looking over this high place, looking over the year that comes, there's a sense to which we declare, Lord, I will not go to the shortcuts I'm going to walk the road that you've called me to walk. I'm going to pursue my relationship with you above every other thing. I want to lay other things down and allow you to grow up. There's a way, it's like like the devil says this to us. There's a way to have all of that without the conflict, without the pain, without the betrayal. Why don't you take it? All you have to do is give up your sold out, single-minded devotion to God. There's this invitation the devil brings to us to just to compromise in our worship of the king. The writer of Hebrews says, 
As I read earlier, since we are receiving a kingdom that is unshakable, let us be thankful and please God by worshiping him with holy fear and awe. For our God is a devouring fire. The ESV says he is a consuming fire. God will not share his devotion with another. It's a, and I, the sense of it's all of us for him or nothing. We come to the point of making this decision as we stand upon the brink of the war of, of 2017 and as we look ahead over 2018, 19, whatever, it goes beyond that. That we want to receive an unshakable kingdom through faith, through, through a radical faith, through an, an alert, fresh obedience, and through deep, heartfelt worship of the king. Why don't you stand with me, please? Why don't the worship team also come up, if you don't mind?